0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Today I'm talking with Kyle Chayko, one of the best writers about the internet I know. His day job is doing that for The New Yorker. And he also has a second gig. He's the co-founder of Dirt, which is an online publication about internet culture. It's also bizarrely one of the few good things, I think, to come out of Web3. We could talk about that in a couple minutes. But first, I wanted to, oh, first of all, let me be a better host. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you for having me. Uh, One of these days, I'm going to get better at hosting a podcast, but I'm still working on it. I wanted to ask you about a piece you wrote recently-ish for The New Yorker. It's called The Age of Algorithmic Anxiety. I thought it was good when it came out. I think it's more relevant than ever for reasons we can discuss. But but what is algorithmic anxiety?
2: Yeah, I do think it's a feeling a lot of us are having. <laughs> like you kind of have a gut reaction when you hear the phrase. But officially, algorithmic anxiety is this phrase that an academic first came up with in 2018. In oh, it's an academic
1: of- phrase. It's not just something you coined. OK.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, I just recognized it so much. I was like, oh, I feel alg- algorithmic anxiety. Um, but this guy, Shagun Javert was studying Airbnb hosts in 2018. And he was interviewing them about how they felt about hosting and how they felt about the algorithmic search on airbnb and it turned out they were all super worried about it they were second guessing what the algorithm was doing how
1: it was rating their properties how it was sending people to them they were concerned they weren't ranking high enough on exactly these yeah. lists and this is anyone who's done anything on the internet professionally I mean, since Google, at least, if not before then, is like, how come the computer gods aren't giving me what I want, <laughs> right? Is that is that a reasonable summary of it? Yeah, and whether, whether you're... Kind of a, a property
2: host or someone who's making money through the platform or as a consumer, you're always kind of worrying about how the algorithm sees you and is it accurate? Is it misperceiving you? Is it making you get less money or less attention or whatever? And I think that's where the anxiety comes in.
1: Do you think it's about algorithms itself and the sorting software that, that various companies, whether it's Airbnb or Meta or Google, are using, or is it a more generalized, just sort of discomfort with tech that is no longer optional, it's just suffused our daily lives?
2: Yeah. I mean, I wrote about it in the essay a little bit as as a metaphor, like the algorithm as a metaphor, because I think now the algorithm has stood in for every kind of anxiety we have about technology. So when Facebook serves us the wrong ad or Instagram doesn't show us our friends or Netflix recommends the wrong thing, we constantly blame the algorithm, even though there's a much larger ecosystem at play of digital advertising and you know, the profit incentives of the tech companies. So I think it goes beyond literal algorithmic recommendations, but it has to do with how pervasive recommendations have become to the point that we really can't avoid them.
1: So the, a lot of the versions you brought up are the thing is showing me the wrong thing. I don't like that. <laughs> or the thing isn't ranking me high enough. I don't like that. How much of algorithmic anxiety is focused on I'm not getting what I want versus one that I I thought about a lot about post-2016 and and the Trump election, which is the algorithm has made our country bad or the world bad. It elected Trump. That must be the reason. Facebook elected Trump and it's the algorithm's fault. Do you distinguish between sort of self-interested algorithmic problems versus it's wrecking the world?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think they're both reactions against the algorithm and against how pervasive it's become. I think it's like, you want to believe or you th- or you think that the algorithm is misunderstanding the world and warping our reality. So on, in one way, it's warping our political identities and making us more extreme and like exaggerating divisions in the country. And then on the more personal individual side, it's warping your taste in culture. It's changing what music you listen to or what TV shows you watch.
1: And how does that square with I hate Mark Zuckerberg? He sold us out to the Republicans or, you know, fix sub in whatever, whatever complaint you have, but it's directed at a person versus at a faceless computer. How do those (laughs) two things square?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, people think of the algorithm as this faceless technological entity, and they tend to think of it as like a terminator type thing that no human controls. They can't interact with it. They can't tell it what to do. When actually these are like very human systems and Mark Zuckerberg does decide how much to weight political content in the Facebook
1: feed. Because there is a lot of vitriol directed at a Mark Zuckerberg and now a Jeff Bezos, and sometimes it's the company. And so there does seem to be some distinction between when people are complaining about tech. Sometimes it's a faceless thing, and sometimes it's a person or a company, and they're doing a thing that's actively bad. They all kind of stick together, I guess, for you? Yeah, they all, I mean, I think I take
2: pains to like remind people in the essay and elsewhere that, you know, tech engineers, employees at tech companies are influencing how the algorithm works. And there's kind of no one algorithm or there's not even a single algorithm over time on one site. It's actually always changing. The incentives are changing and people are making different decisions to have them act in different ways.
1: As someone, again, who professionally uses the Internet and tries to get my stuff to be shown to more people, I think about this stuff a lot. And sometimes I get very frustrated. And then other times I look and go, and sometimes I think, oh, this stuff really, they really must have this stuff finely tuned. Um, And when, especially when things, when when companies are on the ascent, we seem to impart a lot of, oh, they really must, under their AI is amazing. Uh, We hear a lot about TikTok right now. Um, or when BuzzFeed was sort of a sudden, oh, they really understand how publishing works and what people want. And then oftentimes you see examples where the AI or the system seems really fallible. It's not just they're showing me stuff I don't want. They're just, it seems to be really clumsy. The example I always think about is Amazon, which the, uh, you know, the evident AI you can see is you bought this thing. Would you like to buy this thing again? Which is what they're showing me right now. I bought a I bought a gaming headset last week, and they're saying, "Would you like to buy another gaming headset?" And the answer is <laughs> no. You don't seem very sophisticated, and also, you're showing me a really buxom model uh, wearing a bikini, and no one in my house is in. The market for any women's swimsuit. It seems like, okay, this is not quite as sophisticated. You can think of many other examples, or I tell Spotify, please do not give me any more music by Primus. Do you know who Primus is? Yes. A terrible of bass guitar. <laughs> and they keep showing me Primus. And now what they'll do is they'll still give me Primus, but at least they'll exit out. Like there's like they just have not figured out how to not give me the <laughs> thing I keep telling them not to. Or even TikTok yeah. shows me a woman jumping rope very quickly all the time. And I keep saying <laughs> I don't want it. I, I I figured out how to say not interested in this. This is the anxiety. It, it shows up. Well, it it's it's anxiety, but it's also all right. These guys are not rocket scientists. I'm sure there are literal rocket scientists working on it, but it seems like for them to give me a thing that I'm actively trying to not consume seems like it's broken. And even I can even understand. Look. At scale, there if Peter Kafka gets pissed off, and if a ten thousand other people don't even respond to it, that's fine. If we can improve our margins a fraction at the scale we're at, it's worth doing this. Um, but does the sort of fallibility of the algorithm give you peace of mind at all?
2: No, because then I think it controls too much of my life. <laughs> like i'm I'm subject to it. I'm actually suffering from how bad it is, and that reminds me that I can't escape it. I think like, TikTok is a good example where there are ways to show that you don't like content, but it's not super simple and the content can come back and haunt you. Another a woman that I wrote about in that essay was kind of haunted by astrology Twitter, and she couldn't get the recommended astrology tweets out of her feed, even though they were causing her like paranoia about Mercury being in retrograde or whatever. So I don't think they're they're perfect by any means. I think they're getting better. Like TikTok is certainly better than Facebook at creating a customized feed of what mm-hmm. I'm interested in. I, I kind of think my gut instinct is that more things are becoming more algorithmic and more automated. So I think we're kind of at the beginning of that.
1: What is the, the rise of Discord? And if you haven't used Discord, it's just message boards um, mm-hmm. on, on your phone, basically. But that's very much not algorithmic. That's I decide that I want to interact with these people. I have to go do it. Reddit, which continues to be enormously influential, is not really algorithmic at all. You decide what communities you want to hang out on. They'll give you emails saying, check out this cool thing you might like. But that's not really how you use Reddit. Are those just sort of anomalies or is, there a, is, is, is the counterpoint to that to the algorithm worth thinking about?
2: Yeah, I think there's a pendulum swing away from algorithmic feeds and users have kind of gotten exhausted with them and looking are looking for ways out. So when you see the rise of discord or the resurgence of Reddit or more private group texts or whatever, I think you're seeing people move away from feeds and into kind of human curated content communities, even though that's a horrible phrase. But, you know, Discord has a way of feeling better because it's more intimate. You can trust sometimes who's in a chat and who you're talking to. And it's also just not meant to reach the kind of scale and vast
1: audience that Mm -hmm. Twitter
2: or TikTok or whatever causes.
1: Is it a pendulum swing? Um, Like, do you think everything is going to move that way? Because TikTok is by far the dominant social platform. It's, It's, you know, built on ai and algorithms we recently had this thing where you know facebook has basically said we want to turn all our platforms into tiktok because that's the thing we're not being shy about it they're doing it with facebook and they started to do it with instagram to basically just turn instagram into uh tiktok and they got a lot of pushback and they said okay all right we, we, we're not going to do that immediately, but we are going to do it where this is where we're headed. And by the way, you know, your complaints, you're saying you came to Instagram to see pictures of friends. Well, that's not true. That's what you're telling us. It's not true. You want to watch videos and you want to watch videos, from people you don't know, we know, and this is what we're going to do. And that seems, you know, you've got two giant companies saying this is the way forward. Um, that seems, are they right?
2: those Adam Mosseri videos where he's telling you that you want to watch videos on Instagram and the data doesn't lie and you don't want to see your friends. I think that's part of people's exhaustion with those platforms, like the the platform kind of misunderstanding the user despite how they act. I mean, sure, we're addicted to algorithmic video feeds. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we want to be using them all the time. Um, but I think what you see is the the kind of early adopter or pro user People on the internet moving into more private spaces and kind of figuring out how they work. And I think you might see a bifurcation kind of where people have their own private communities and friend groups and smaller things. And then you have the megaphone stuff when you want Mm -hmm. to be public, when you want to have an audience. Because I think you can't be an influencer in a discord necessarily. Like there's not a scalability and there's less incentive to be this kind of public figure.
1: You need you need a one to many.
2: Yeah. You need to to grow an audience. You need a TikTok. You need a Twitter.
1: You know, I think I'm thinking a lot about, you know, the, the sort of point we're at now with Netflix and HBO Max and sort of, a, you know, is the what's going to happen with streaming. And one of the complaints for a long time about Netflix, usually from people who were in Hollywood, not so much from users, but it, it's, you, you would do hear it from normal people. saying, there's too much stuff or Netflix shows me the wrong stuff. It's too much. Uh, it's too much to pick from. And in some ways I translate that as like, I wish we went back to TV <laughs> where yeah. there were just shows that were on at a certain time and you either left the channel unchanged or you flipped around. That seems terrible to go back to that world where you didn't have any choice. I think more choice is better But you know, maybe the algorithm today is the same as a programming executive for NBC in 1997. And that's, there is a consistent complaint about just being, not having that choice.
2: Yeah, and I think algorithmic recommendations are different for different people. So rather than a programming executive, you get this like fragmentation of the audience where I don't know what you're seeing, I don't know what I can talk to you about. With Netflix and streaming, like to me, the real problem is discovery is totally broken. We're like, it's actually really hard to search Netflix for something that you want to see. It's hard to like find a specific genre of stuff. So sure, they're pushing recommendations to the homepage, mm-hmm. but they're not letting me signal that much that I'm interested in. Like, I love food documentaries. It's actually really hard to search Netflix for, like, all the food documentaries.
1: It is weird because they pride themselves on on their tech background, and they should be really good at that. There's evidently, you can tell there's an issue between, a fight between Stuff they hope you watch versus stuff Mm -hmm. you might want to watch, you know, a a mainstay of their their homepage for now a couple of years is this is what's popular with other people. (laughs) Maybe you'd like to watch that. What's the makeup of your media diet right now? You're a professional media consumer. How much of the stuff is stuff that you've sought out, Mm -hmm. lean forward versus stuff that's being served to you?
2: I think, I mean, I watch a lot of TikTok, (laughs) probably definitely too much. So that's a lot of lean back. And like, I'm not giving TikTok a lot of signals. I'm not following a lot of accounts. I just kind of like to see what the feed brings up. But I think in terms of like music and streaming, certainly uh, I do do a lot of digging and I try to get as many human recommendations as I can. So that comes in the form of like, newsletters on Substack or people's good Twitter accounts. Um, Maybe a podcast here (laughs) might might get you to something like
1: a New Yorker article. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor.
0: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: And we're back. Speaking of Substack, let's talk about DIRT which is a newsletter published on Substack. You are the co-founder. Your co-founder's name is? Daisy Alioto. That's good. I wanted to make sure she got a shout out. How would you describe what Dirt is beyond newsletter?
2: Yeah, I mean, Dirt is, it is a daily newsletter that covers like digital culture and online entertainment. Um, But more broadly, I think we're attempting to use NFTs and Web3 technology. Oh, you stepped on it before we even get there. So you you don't (laughs) have to
1: consume, you don't have to, so to be clear, I recommend everyone subscribe to Dirt. It is free. It's just like any other Substack. You don't have to touch a single NFT (laughs) or any bit of crypto to consume it. So if you like what Kyle writes, it's a lot of people writing in that smart, nuanced, short, digestible, thinky way about pop culture. Um, Yeah, we're trying
2: to replace the blog era and get back to some cool criticism and interest writing.
1: I would say it's it's you're going back to the blog era. And, uh, but, but we'll leave it there. But like you said, there is a crypto element as of this year. It's There is now a DIRT DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization. And if you would have asked me about DAOs last fall, I would have said, I don't really get them, but smart people I know think they're really interesting. And by spring of this year, I would say DAOs just seem to be pretty stupid. Um, they're, they're, you know, online co-ops, but they're really just at, you know, at best delusional about what you can do when you harness (laughs) people on the internet. And a lot of them are outright scams. All of what you say is your DAO seems pretty interesting. So, so describe it to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I do think all of those kinds of DAOs exist. It's kind of like saying there are different kinds of websites. Like, you can have a website to do whatever you want.
1: Well, uh, I've been looking for interesting DAOs, and really, you are the first one that I've found.
2: <laughs> well, that's that's very nice of you. Um, or maybe so I'm not the, looking hard
1: enough, but you can explain, explain how the Dirt DAO works.
2: Yeah, the, the Dirt DAO, so we initially funded the newsletter by selling NFTs and then distributing tokens that went along with those NFTs. So the gist of it is that if you bought our NFTs and have our tokens, you can go into a locked Discord channel, talk to our staff, have editorial discussions. Then we send out an exclusive newsletter, which is like a paywall newsletter to our DAO members. And that essentially hosts votes about our editorial process.
1: So I want I want to talk about that process. But first, just, just so I understand the history, was Dirt always connected to a DAO and to NFTs, or was it an existing publication and you bolted on a crypto and, and Web3 to it?
2: Yeah, it kind of evolved. So I, I started it in December 2020, I think, just as a way to talk about digital media in kind of peak lockdown, like when truly everyone was just sitting at home watching TV. Mm -hmm. So I figured that it would be, you know, serve a need for people to discuss what they were consuming online. And over the next like few months, I just, I think NFTs were starting to boom a little bit. I was interested in covering them more in dirt and learning more about it. Um, And then as the tools kind of became more accessible to make and sell NFTs, I figured that it would be cool to attempt to use that system to like make a media company.
1: So when you started it, were you paying writers?
2: No. So it was just, it was just Daisy and I okay. right at the beginning. Just uh, writing. Yeah. And so we are paying writers. Like we pay our freelancers a dollar a word at this point. Um, and where and does so the, the money,
1: th- where does the money come from? Is it all coming from the, the NFT sales?
2: So the initial, like our first batches of NFT sales netted about $100,000, I think, in U.S. dollars. Um, And so we used that budget to like run seasons of our editorial and to commission writers and and fund the publication as you would a normal publication. Um, At this stage, we did get Uh, venture capital investment a few months ago. So so now we're expanding.
1: You've raised like about a million dollars, million point two. So that will fund a series of essays. I'm not paying anything for it. It's it's free, right? I I don't have to pay anything. And I I don't think I've seen an ad in it.
2: No, there's no advertising. We do do some like cross promotion, like a lot of newsletters. Um, But the idea is a kind of patronage model a little bit where the DAO members and the NFT buyers are buying it at a much higher rate than you'd pay for a subscription, but that funds the whole company for a much broader audience.
1: So, so now I want—I was—I talked to you a little bit about this offline, but I, I really want to figure out how the Dow, what the DAO does and doesn't do, because to me, yeah. the idea of having a publication run by any kind of committee sounds not good. Let alone <laughs> people on the internet whose sole credential is they bought a piece of digital something. What actual sway does an d- individual DAO member, or even the entire collective, have over what you guys publish, how you publish it, where you head next? Could they? Could the DAO rise up and say this is now a publication dedicated to covering long-haired Persian cats?
2: Yeah, I mean that's the balance that we want to strike. Is it's it's not publication by democracy. Like I don't think anyone really wants that in the end. Um, so what we do is essentially Daisy and I, and our editorial staff curate story ideas. So we curate pitches from freelancers. I once did a, you know, a list of four stories I wanted to write and then had people vote on them. So we're kind of, you know, DAOs do governance. So like what is our DAOs governance is selecting like which pitches from an already curated list of pitches we're going to do soonest. So it's already stories we want to do.
1: So is it just limited to here's a list of, here's a menu. You could pick the things on the menu if it's, you can't pick off the menu. Is that, is that sort of the full extent of it?
2: Yeah, exactly. So that's the stage that it's at now. And I think in the future, we'd like more tools for DAO members to propose story ideas and then get those funded, Uh, launch new columns, launch new projects based on what people vote for.
1: So that sounds kind of interesting. On the other hand, this is my standard Web3 question. Why do you need the blockchain for this? Why not run a traditional poll or sell traditional subscriptions with a, with a credit card and your subscription also entitles you to a special vote in the special room or whatever it is? What What is the point of, of using the blockchain for this?
2: Yeah. I feel like I hear this critique on your podcast and, you know, I don't podcast. even know if it's a critique. It's
1: just a, it's a, it's a straight up question.
2: No, no, it's a, it's a good question. And I think there's often not a good answer, but here are my answers. Like, I do think there are very specific use cases that are really good for this. Um, so I think raising money via NFTs, sure. You could sell t-shirts or tote bags or whatever, But what the blockchain stuff does give you is like a very transparent record, permanent record of who has paid what at what time. And then using that record, we've granted people tokens, which are proportionate to how many NFTs they've bought and how much money they've put in. Mm -hmm. So those tokens then allow them to exercise their votes according to how much they've put into the system. And then with blockchain-based voting systems, all of the votes are always public forever. We can't stop them being public. And this like record that develops over time is also really useful for DIRT as a publication, because we know who's participating most actively. We kind of know who our, who our core supporters are, and we can send other NFTs to their wallets. We can bring them into new projects. We can kind of incorporate them into our ecosystem more in the future um so i think like those those are some useful things for us and then on the consumer side i think in some ways owning an nft is better than just paying a subscription fee because it is something that you own and hold in your wallet and there is a chance you could resell it in the future if you got bored of the publication or if you wanted to Mm -hmm. do something else with your money
1: uh, Zach Weinberg, who is an ardent Web3 critic, uh, was on this podcast a few weeks ago. He said something that really stuck in my head. He said, if you want to talk to if you want to figure out if a Web3 thing is real, ask them what happens if you sort of take away the tokenomics from it. If if you don't have the ability as a token buyer, as an NFT buyer to make more money down the road as this thing increases in value, what happens to the project? If if I couldn't resell my NFT, if I couldn't make money from my Dirt subscription, does the DAO still work?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I think some people have resold Dirt NFTs for more money. I would not say that that's the usual thing or what we expect people to do with them. I think like if the only incentive in a Web3 project is to make more money than it's a failure as a project because you're not really offering anything. So for us, you're buying an NFT, you're buying a member subscription or whatever. What you're getting out of it is not just trying to make more money, but it's like participating in our governance and editorial discussions. It's like knowing that you're supporting the publication and the content for other people. And maybe, I, I would hope that in the future, when we do more dirt NFTs, maybe you'll sell for the same price that you bought it. Like, you buy a subscription, two years later, you get bored of it, you sell it back for the same amount. And so that means that you've supported us and funded us, but you're getting that money back out of the ecosystem. And it's like, you know, a subscription is maybe like a rent on content, like it's going away. And maybe an NFT can be a more durable form where when you're bored with it, you sell it and you get most of that money back.
1: So when I get sick of Netflix, if it was a DAO, I could I could just sell my token back and, then, <laughs> and someone would pay me for my Netflix subscription. And I, I kind of asked about this before, but let's say Peter Thiel decides that he hates dirt and would like it to go away. Could he buy up all of the, the, the tokens and NFTs and do something to DIRT or the, the, who ends up owning it fundamentally?
2: Well, I think there's some DAOs that are much more decentralized that are totally like owned by the token holders. DIRT is not really like that. Like we're not promising a financial stake. We're not promising that you have control over the company. We're just promising that you have the opportunity to do editorial votes and talk to us and have these discussions. So even if Peter Thiel owns every Dirt NFT, he can still choose from, like, the four Netflix shows that we want to review. He
1: cannot make you uh, write a a piece in praise of authoritarianism.
2: No, no. And I mean, a a different media company in Web3 could do that, like, just a kind of vote-based medium or something. Uh But that's not what we're doing. Like, editorial by committee, as you said, is, is usually boring.
1: Did you follow Civil? This was a blockchain publishing experiment. We had Zanush uh, Zamarodi on a few years ago now, 2018, to talk about it. Um, I was baffled, but you're nodding your head, so it means you did did follow it. I was confused from it from the get-go and felt I I didn't root for its failure, but I was a little relieved when it failed, so I didn't have to worry about thinking about it anymore. Was there some lesson you took out of Civil that you're applying to, to DIRT?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think civil was using tokens in a much broader capacity. As I recall, it was partly to like vote on fact checking. Mm -hmm. Like you could resolve fact check disputes by voting with people's tokens. And I just think that's too far and like too big of a capacity for tokens to like vote on the truth. Um, So instead, we're just like we're trying to limit the scope and focus on what we do best, which is like produce... A good newsletter and editorial that people want to read. And the question is how do we bring subscribers deeper into that process and like make them feel like more of a part of it, not letting them vote on what is the truth of our publication.
1: So like I said, I've been looking for interesting DAOs, looking for just interesting Web3 projects, period, that don't seem dumb. Yours yours is in the, the cool category. You said I'm painting with too broad a brush. There's other cool stuff out there. So in non-algorithmic recommendations. What are, what are other interesting Web3 and DAO projects that you'd recommend that I and listeners check out?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's still an evolving field, but I think there are starting to be more legitimate projects. I think this project called Archive, like Archive with a K, um, is a museum DAO essentially, where people who join and who put in funding can choose which objects the the group is collecting. And what they're collecting now is kind of cultural ephemera, like early MTV artifacts or the model of the first snowboard. And then these kind of like overlooked cultural objects that I think could be kind of valuable and it's regardless fun the thought of like helping to choose what what things a museum is collecting is is a cool thing to do. Uh, there's another media web three project called Channel, which is a series of like very niche cultural podcasts, and they made a member pass or like a subscription mechanism using NFTs, and I think they're using that funding to produce like very specialized, very intense content that some people really love, and I think that's interesting and then i mean you have the classic nft profile picture groups like board ape yacht club mm-hmm. and i think uh, to me i mean it's honestly kind of exciting to see them making tons of money producing stuff it might go nowhere but it's at least a lot of energy and yeah we, we we've
1: talked before and you brought up board ape Yacht club and i was surprised because to me it seems like this <laughs> is a quintessential like sounds cool until you look at it and then you realize no none of this can work and you know, I don't begrudge anyone taking a fly and a speculative flyer on something. And by the way, I don't begrudge anyone buying access to a club they think is cool. Although any club you can buy into can't be that cool. But it, it seems <laughs> to me that the whole premise that it's because the whole premise of Board API Club is not just that it's a club. It's we're making this cool intellectual property, and it's gonna be stuff. It's gonna be movies or TV shows or uh, those haven't happened yet. But there is, I guess, like a burger restaurant in southern california that uses board eight <laughs> yeah. yacht club but uh, it just seems like this this can't possibly work and anyone anyone who tells you otherwise is a charlatan i don't think you're a charlatan and you don't have a vested interest in this so what am i missing about the board eight yacht club
2: I mean, I think, I mean, on one level, I think the IP argument is is really bad. Like I don't think anyone wants to make a Bored Ape TV show. I don't think anyone wants to pay you to license your individual ape, which is wearing a special hat. Like it's just, it's not appealing storytelling for anyone. But what I do find compelling about Bored Ape and other like profile picture things is that it brings together a community of people around some kind of shared purpose online. And sometimes that shared purpose is just like pumping your NFT, right? It's just to make more money. But it's almost like refreshing to see people positively supporting the same project, even for any reason, just because, you know, Twitter for the past 10 years has been total melee war of all against all. And I'm like, oh, you guys are being nice to each other. That's that's cool and different, actually.
1: Okay, is it but is it different than GameStop? or AMC where where you had a bunch of people we don't know who they were it's the theory uh, getting together in reddit they were positive they wanted their stock price to go up but
2: <laughs> no it's a good it's a good question i mean i think there is a different angle than just the stock price going up i think it is people talking to each other i think there are some creative projects that have come out of it like Ape has done some stuff there's a project called blitmap that i enjoyed being a part of the community I think it's just like when I talk to people as a journalist, every tech person I talk to now is talking about how do we make a social network for 1,000 people, for 5,000, for 10,000. And NFTs have a way of doing that because mm-hmm. they create like a scarcity of accounts within the group or belonging within the group. And that's something that I find totally interesting.
1: Okay. Um, so we found three interesting NFT, Web3, DAO projects, (laughs) one that you think is interesting that I think is not, um, that's not bad. That's a pretty good ratio. Yeah,
2: there's stuff going on. I think media companies are starting to think about it. I mean, I know your company has been discussing stuff, but we're just early on in this process.
1: Oh boy. Um, I have to ask my bosses about the the Vox (laughs) Media NFT. Actually, you know, I can imagine ways that would work, but I'm going to stop talking about my employer for now. I want to say thank you, Kyle, for joining us. This is great.
2: Yeah, this is so much fun, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. So thank you, cool. sir.
1: I'm a fan of your writing, which you can find at The New Yorker. You don't write that much for Dirt at this point, right? It's mostly contributors.
2: Well, the other thing that I'm doing is finishing my second book manuscript, which is about algorithmic culture, and it will be ah. called Filter World, and hopefully it'll be done someday.
1: Okay, I foretell another Recode Media uh, appearance in your future when you've got a book to, to sell. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much.